we are in a Sunday series, a very short series called Sunday Rhythms, where we are looking at the aspects of our order of worship. Uh, every element of our service is intentional, and we engage in them week after week in the belief that rhythms actually shape and form us. They fashion us to be the types of worshipers that God wants us to be. And so when we repeatedly do something week after week, year after year, uh, we um, become uh, we, we, we not only know the right attitude, but to have the right approach to come to God. And so we're going to think through some of those things. Now, I said a few years ago that we had covered most of these. Uh, this time around, we're just looking at a few. Uh, this morning, we're looking at the rhythm of giving. And the rhythm of giving in our order of worship, we call the collection of tithes and offering. And so although we just stood, I invite you to stand with me. Dear friends, standing is an act of worship for the reading of God's word and the receiving of God's word as it is his gift given to us. Hear it now in Luke 12, beginning with verse 32. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated, and would you pray with me once more? Father in heaven, we ask for your blessing upon now the preaching of this very word of God. We ask, Lord, for open hearts, open minds. Lord, um, we pray that you would uh, speak not only to our heads, but you would speak to our hearts. And in that way, Lord, for those who need the comfort of your word, comfort us. And those who need the challenge of your word, challenge us. Those who need, Lord, the conviction of your word, convict us, O Holy Spirit. And those who need instruction to grow in greater faithfulness and discipleship, would you provide us that? But in all things, Lord, uh, speak to us now as your people. We, the church, are listening. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, there's a story about a $1 bill that was reunited with his friend, the $20 bill, after many years of not seeing each other. And the $1 bill said, hey, it's been such a long time. What have you been up to? And the $20 bill answered, well, you know, I've been all over the place. I left the country on a cruise. I got to travel the world. But since coming back to the States, I spent most of my time in casinos, restaurants, shopping malls. It's been quite the ride. How about you? What have you been up to? And the $1 bill said, you know, the same old stuff, church, church, church. <laughs> you know, the humor of this uh, fictitious story is meant to alert us to a uh, actually very serious statistic that we've seen in the American Protestant church over the past several years, which is that on the whole, statistics show that Christians uh, give less than 3% of their income. Now, this sermon is not about how much a Christian should give or whether they are obligated to keep the tithe or not. We're not going there today. But this sermon is about the centrality of giving as a weekly rhythm in the life of the worship service, a worship that the people of God should offer unto the Lord. Now, the rhythm of giving has both a central role in the worship service as our worship offered unto God, but it also has a way of forming us to be the kinds of Christians God has called us to be. And what kind of Christian is that? Well, one of the descriptions that God makes clear is in 2 Corinthians 9 when Apostle Paul writes this, God loves a cheerful giver. Or it's clear God's expectations for his people is that they be a giving people. 
But this giving is not just spontaneous, in the moment, out of the joy of my heart kind of giving, but a regular, weekly, planned out giving. Paul also writes in 1 Corinthians 16, these words to the church there. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up. The giving God wants and desires of his people is a planned giving, a scheduled giving, a thought out giving, a set aside from the rest of the week's giving. This is what the Lord intends. And in order for us to be this type of giving people, we're called to follow the rhythm of giving. Now, that rhythm of giving is not a brief aside. It's not, oh, right before the service, I just want to point you to the offering basket in the back. Nor is it after the service, oh, by the way, on the way out, if you feel so led by the Spirit, you can drop off some offering. Nor is it in the middle of the service to be this kind of, oh, sorry to inconvenience you, but we kind of have to ask you if you feel so led, would you please give? No, rather, we practice it. We make it a central part of our order of worship. And our order of worship here at Cornerstone, it falls dead in the center. Our giving is worship unto the Lord. And it's because giving is worship that it is so concerning when we see how low giving is across churches here in America. Now, I just want to be clear because it may sound like our church is greedy and just wants your money. The issue is not this. The issue is not you need to give X amount of money, so why aren't you giving more? That's not the issue. The issue is this. If giving is worship, then are you seeking to give generously and sacrificially from your heart? If it is worship, are you desiring to offer it unto God from your heart? I think a lot of us need a new understanding of giving, the rhythm and practice of giving. Um, if you're like me and you grew up in the church, uh, you may be familiar. Uh, generally in church services, there's a portion just called something generic like offering. Uh, and that's the time you give. I remember the way I grew up in youth group. Uh, every week, uh, two students uh, were voluntold uh, to be the offering ushers. And, uh, you know, it was not really a privilege. Uh, it was uh, forced labor. And uh, they would take the offering baskets. And it just, it's amazing how in the most uh, uninterested way, <laughs> they would go and pass the baskets row to row. They'd collect the offering. They would walk it up front. Some student would come up. They would mumble through a prayer. And then we would continue with our worship service. And basically, you would sit there and you just gave some money and you have no idea what happened, why we did what we did. And the problem is, week after week, we were, we were formed. We were unintentionally formed because we weren't instructed, but we were formed because we began to fill in our own blanks. Why are we giving offering? And as you grew older, it began to make more sense. Well, you have to pay the pastor. You have to uh, pay the mortgage on the building. And, oh, yeah, I guess electricity does cost money. And donuts. You know, we need donuts and, and church coffee. I actually had some, someone come to me and said, if I give more often, can we get better coffee? Um, I said, yeah, at Starbucks. Um, and so we tend to reduce our offering uh, to basically this. We give because God needs us to give. We give because the church needs us to give. But here's the thing. Although this is how the church offering is spent, this is not why we give our offering. The offering time in the order of service is not just a mechanism by which we solicit donations uh, to the church. Our giving doesn't serve God's benefit primarily. It actually serves our benefits. 
because it shapes us to be the type of worshipers God desires. Let me be clear on this. Here is kind of the summary of the sermon. The rhythm of giving teaches us that collecting tithes and offerings is less about donating and it's more about declaring. Our collecting of tithes and offerings is not so much about donating as if we're giving unto a good cause, we're giving to charity, but it's about declaring. We're declaring that God is a greater treasure than our money, that there's a worship aspect to our giving. So how does it do that? Well, let's look at our passage. Jesus says something very difficult to his disciples here in verse 33. We read these words, sell your possessions and give to the needy. And when Jesus commands this, he is calling his disciples to a kind of radical generosity that would hurt them and significantly inconvenience them. He's calling them to a type of generosity that would cost them something. And in fact, Jesus fully anticipated that this would make his disciples uncomfortable, that it would be a little scary if they were to hear the command to sell your possessions and give to the needy and actually live it out. And we know this is the case because Jesus doesn't just begin in verse 33 saying, all of you now sell your possessions and give. Rather, he begins with a promise, an assurance. Look at verse 32. This is where he begins. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Jesus knew that what he would demand of them would be so radically difficult for them to obey, that he first began with the reassurance, I don't want you to be worried. I don't want you to fear. And that means at least this. When we get to verse 33, the command here to sell your possessions, to give to the needy, that should not be softened. It's supposed to be a serious command of sacrifice. Now, a lot of us We're not very flexible, but when it comes to hard and difficult passages, we do a Simone Biles gymnastics and we maneuver our way around these kinds of commands and we say, oh, sell your possessions. Well, oh, the Greek, I think possessions doesn't actually mean possessions. Oh, oh, when it says uh, sell your, it doesn't mean your, it means like our. No, 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 friends. We can't do that here. Jesus is calling his followers his disciples, to a type of generosity that is sacrificial and costly because those who belong to the kingdom of God live in such a way. Kingdom people with citizenship in heaven are not supposed to find their identity, their hope, or their security here in the things of this world. And as a result, if your identity, your hope, your security is placed in the world to come, in the kingdom that the Father has promised then it allows you to more easily part with the things of this world. That's why Jesus begins with this, fear not. I don't want you to fear concerning the thing I'm about to say. And here's how you can't fear. Here's why you shouldn't fear. Because the Father has promised you a kingdom to come. Therefore, with the things of this earth, sell them. Give to the needy. Be generous. Be sacrificial. Friends, we are destined toward another world, meaning the currency of this world should grip us less and less. Have you ever been on a vacation or maybe a mission trip where you had to exchange your currency? Some of us have been on those types of trips where you go and you exchange your U.S. dollars for the currency of whatever place you are in. And generally at the end of that vacation or at the end of that mission trip, you have uh, some money left over. 
Now, I've never been in a situation where I had just so much money left over that I could go spend it lavishly. But generally, uh, most of the time, I have enough money where I can go to the souvenir shop, I can go to the airport, and I can buy a few things. Maybe you've done this, right? You have a few dollars left over, so you go and you say, well, you know, I have this much money, what can I buy? And then you buy a couple souvenirs, and then you come back and you give them away as gifts. And you say, I thought of you, and this is why I gave you this gift. And you know, I, that's what I do. I, at the airport, I always buy whatever local chocolate or local candy, and then I come back and I'm like, I thought of you. <laughs> so if you've received that gift from me, well, now you know. But why do we do this? Because we know that if you take that currency back to the United States, it's not worth anything. That currency doesn't have value here. Why would you hold on to another nation's money so tight-fistedly? Why would you try to save it? Why would you grip your hands so tightly around it? See, if you know the currency means nothing in your true home, you're more easily able to part with it. That's the logic Jesus is using here in Luke 12. He says in verse 32, it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. You are headed toward another home, a true home, the kingdom of God that God has promised. And if you know you're destined there, why would you hold so tight-fistedly to the currency of this world? He says, don't you know that if you believe your citizenship is in there, then you can be radically generous here. If you know that you'll be rich in the kingdom of God then, you can be radically generous now. Because in that kingdom, the treasures, the riches are vastly different. Look at verse 33. Jesus says, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. He says, this is what's waiting for you in heaven. Are you divesting yourself of earthly treasures now to invest in the promised guaranteed heavenly treasures? And that means at least this, dear Christian, you should be able to give away earthly treasures cheerfully, sacrificially, and generously because your true treasures are kept in heaven waiting for you. You know, ultimately, the, the, the pattern of your giving, the rhythm of your giving, it, it's actually revealing quite a lot about yourself. It's revealing what you truly believe, and it's revealing what is ruling your heart. You know, Jesus goes on to say this in a very insightful way in verse 34. He says, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. He's saying you can really identify where your heart is by looking at what your treasures are. What are the things that you're hoping in? What are you finding your security in? What are the things that you're looking to form an identity around? And the reality is that our culture tells us to find it in our money, in our financial status, and how much we have, and how much we make, and how much we've saved. And when we're not actively thinking about money from a kingdom perspective, with a kingdom vision, we're going to be a lot more susceptible to the patterns of this world, much more than we realize. I mean, just think about the vocabulary used about money. When we talk about money here in this world and our relationship to it. And I got this insight from a pastor who basically said, you know, think about where do you keep your money? You keep it in a safe. What do you call your stocks and bonds? You call it your securities. 
What do you call the sum of what you own? You call it your net worth. And our language reveals the unhealthy way we relate to money when we're not proactively thinking about it from a kingdom perspective. But, you know, more than just how we talk about money, the way that we actually participate with it, our relationship with it, our actions reveal a lot. This is why a Christian's willingness or unwillingness to give is a sneak peek into your heart. Your generosity with your income or your stinginess with it, your desire to give it away or your desire to hoard it for yourself, all of this is an indication of what you are truly treasuring in your heart. And this is why weekly giving is far more than just a donation. It's a declaration. It's a declaration of what you treasure most, of what rules your heart. Is it God or is it money? And in this way, weekly giving serves almost the same purpose as weekly singing. Because our giving says in action what our singing says in words. God, you are worthy of everything. God, I treasure you more than I treasure the things of this world. Your giving declares a statement. God is far more glorious and far more satisfying than anything that this earth can offer. Any possession that I can buy, any vacation that I can go on, any portfolio I can invest in. So let me ask you once more, do you view your giving as donating unto a needy God or declaring the worthiness of God? Now, I recognize that in this congregation uh, that most of you truly desire God. You, you want to treasure him. You want to make him number one. But it's so difficult to give cheerfully, sacrificially, and generously. And often the most common excuse that I hear from people of why they cannot give more is this. I don't have enough to give generously, sacrificially, cheerfully. And the lie that we often believe is something more like, is something like this. Once I have a little bit more, once we're more financially stable, once these kinds of uh, loans are, are paid off, once I attain this, once I can invest in this, then I'll have enough to give. You know, John Rockefeller was uh, the wealthiest guy in America in the early 1900s, and he was asked by a reporter the simple question, when is enough? How much money is enough? And he hauntingly said, one more dollar. Whatever I have, how much is enough? Well, it's just one more than what I have. And it's a sad response, but it really captures the attitude of many people. We feel like we're never in a position to give in a manner that is sacrificial, generous, and cheerful. And we tell ourselves, once we have more, once we accrue more, then we'll be able to give. But if what Jesus says is true, if the treasure of your heart, what you truly believe, if, if, if that's what is gripping you, that's what your identity, your security, your hope is found in, then it's a total lie because the reality is once you have more, it is so much harder to give. 
Haven't you found that to be the case? If you accrue more, you attain more, you amass more than what's happened. More of your identity is put into that. More of your self-worth, more of your value, more of your security is put into that, your possessions. And so it's much harder to give. Why? Because if your identity is tied to what you have, then to give is to empty yourself. It's to deplete yourself. So the lie that I'll give once I have more, once I have enough, needs to be exposed and broken. And you must realize this simple, very simple truth. There's no amount of earthly treasure or possessions that will ever satisfy your heart simply because you were made for something better and more lasting. Picture your heart. You have to imagine your heart like it's a, a strainer or a colander. Yes, I learned what that word meant. It was on our wedding registry. A colander. That's what your heart is like. And at the bottom of it, there are a bunch of holes. And what we so often try to do is with earthly riches and possessions and money, we try to fill our hearts. But we don't realize that those things of the world are just liquid. And you fill them, you pour it in, and it'll just keep coming out at the other end. So over and over again, you work hard, you seek the next promotion, you find a new job, you want to invest in this. You hoard here, you save here. And you try to amass more and more, but we are simply just pouring liquid into a heart with holes. And it will never satisfy because your heart was never meant to be, <laughs> to be full and satisfied with the things of this world. You need something solid. You need something substantial, something weighty. And that, my friends, is what the Lord offers to you. He offers himself. He says, I'm the only lasting treasure that will not fail you. I'm the only true treasure that thieves can't break in and steal. I'm the only permanent kind of treasure that moth cannot destroy. You know, in the Old Testament, when Israel left Egypt and they were headed toward the promised land, they were wandering in the desert, but they were wandering with purpose. God had promised them possession of Canaan. And upon crossing over the Jordan River, they received the allotment of land that God had promised. So all of these tribes, they were given portions of the land except for the tribe of Levi. The Levites, it seems when we read it, they were gypped. They didn't get land. They didn't get an inheritance. But the reality is that it's actually the other way. All the other tribes, they were gypped. They got the short end of the stick. You know why? Because we read in Deuteronomy 10, 9, therefore Levi has no portion or inheritance with his brothers. He doesn't get land like everybody else. The Lord is his inheritance, as the Lord your God said to him. We read the same thing in Numbers 18, where it says, you shall have no inheritance in their land, neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. The point God made was that he himself was the better inheritance. He was the truer treasure. He was the chosen portion. And this is why earlier in Luke, in that scene, when Jesus enters the house of, house of Mary and Martha, remember that scene? And Martha slaving away in the kitchen, and she's working hard, she's making bread, she's preparing a meal, and Mary is sitting there at the foot of Jesus, and she is listening to him, enjoying his uh, relationship with him. 
And Martha comes storming in, right? She has like flour on her hair. You know, she's huffing and puffing, right? And she's like, well, this lazy girl is not doing anything. And what does Jesus say? Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. She has the good portion. Why? Because she has fellowship with Jesus. Friends, if you've experienced God as your good portion, if you've experienced him as your true treasure, you know he's your inheritance, you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, then what you begin to realize is that the grip over the currencies of this world begin to loosen. Because the God I have, the treasure I have, the inheritance portion that I have, he is better. But not only is he better, what kind of God is he? He is a giving God. We talk about giving worship to God, giving our offerings, and and we talk about that. and, And somehow in there, we start getting twisted where we view God as a receiving God, that God is a God who just loves to receive. But that's not the nature of God. Our God is a giving God. Read again verse 32. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He doesn't give begrudgingly. He doesn't give half-heartedly. He doesn't give angrily. It is his good pleasure to give. It is the delight of his heart to lavish upon you a gift you do not deserve. It gives great joy and cheer in the Father's heart to give to you that which you've actually disqualified yourself from. God takes so much pleasure in giving. That's his heart. This is the heart of a God who not only gives you the kingdom, but he gives you eternal life to enjoy the kingdom forever. And the offer of the kingdom that he gives, the eternal life by which you enjoy that kingdom forever, all of that is received through this most precious gift that he gives. John 3, 16, we read this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believed in him should not perish, but have eternal life. If you have God as your true treasure, your everlasting portion, then you realize that he is a giving God, that God did far more than sell his possessions to give to the needy. He sent his son to die for the destitute. He gave up far more than the things of this earth, but he gave up the treasure of heaven. And in giving his one and only son, Jesus, what did he gain? Imperfect, messed up, broken sinners like you and me. For a reason that we do not understand and with a love that is far beyond our comprehension, God decided to give up his son to gain you. But it was his good pleasure to do so. He is a giving God. And what better way than to respond to this giving God as our true treasure than to cherish him above all things. And we do that as we practice the rhythm of giving. We declare that he is far more worthy than any earthly possession that I could ever have. And so friends, when you give, you're doing far more than donating. You are responding. You are declaring. He is worthy. He is my treasure. He who gave his one and only son, how will I not give him this? Joyfully, cheerfully, generously, sacrificially. 
Let me just ask this simple question as we begin to close. What does your giving declare about the treasure of your heart? If someone were to look at the practices and the rhythms of your giving, what would they conclude is the true treasure of your heart? Not by profession, not by confession, but by action. Would they conclude that the true treasure of your heart is something here on earth or something in heaven? Let me close by reading just this verse. It's a story a few chapters later in the Gospel of Luke, Luke 21. And the author records for us this. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. And what does it take to impress Jesus? He's impressed with this poor widow, not because her, her two coins so significantly helped meet the synagogue budget. No, certainly the gifts of the rich contributed far more to that end. But Jesus is impressed because her giving declared the worth of God in a greater way than the giving of the rich. Her giving declared she treasured God with her whole life because she gave all that her life depended on. And as a result, she gave out of sacrifice, not out of surplus. Dear friends, when the gospel comes in, it actually pierces your hearts. When it goes from head to heart and it grips your heart, it loosens, it pries loose your hold over the things of this earth. When the giving God becomes the true treasure of your life, you too can give. And you give not out of surplus, but you give out of sacrifice. You give not out of the command, but you give out of cheerfulness. You give not out of guilt, but you give out of generosity. And when you see that it was a father's good pleasure to give all to you, you can begin to take pleasure in responding by giving them to God. This is how you become the cheerful giver that God desires. So every week, week by week, we acknowledge, we pause, we stop, we say, this is the collection of tithes and offerings. You're doing far more than donating. You are declaring that he is worthy of all that you have. Let's pray.